everyone. My name is Deborah Kahn. I'm the founder of Being Patient. Welcome to Brain Talks. Uh, today we're going to talk about a topic I know a lot of us think about, um, and that's stress and how stress impacts the health of our brain. Um, joining me today is Daniela Koffer. She's at UC Berkeley, um, and she studies how things like stress and PTSD uh, impact the structure of the brain. Thanks so much for joining us, Daniela. Thanks for having me. So what, um, tell us a little bit about what your research indicates. I mean, we know, you know, this, this, this talk actually comes at a particularly stressful week for me. Um, how much damage does stress do to our brains? So uh, what we're studying in the lab is um, basically what we call plasticity, which we usually think about as a positive thing, how the brain adapts to things that are different in our environment. Everything that changes might change plasticity in the brain. So it changes structures and it changes function. And we know that it's a lot more complicated than just what does stress do. So if there's stress, it's going to have this damage on the brain. It's actually much more complex than that. It depends when in life. So when the stress comes on a very young brain versus uh, a more mature brain, there are times where the brain is much more vulnerable as a young brain and developing brain. And later on, it has different effects. And then there are effects of how do we perceive that stress? And um, for instance, what is our appraisal of the situation? Even when we are looking at rats, the way that they're appraising a situation can be something that changes. And so we see that uh, very similar stressors could be very damaging to the brain and to areas of the brain that are susceptible, like the hippocampus, which I'm sure you guys talked about as you're focusing on areas of the brain that, that have to do with memory. Um, but sometimes in a different context or in a different appraisal situation, it actually is beneficial for the brain and it helps it deal with the next stressor that comes along. So we've had, um, we've had research that have shown how some stress can be beneficial and change the structure of the hippocampus and therefore the function of the hippocampus. And we've had uh, work in which we've shown how this could be very detrimental to memory function, to uh, then cause anxiety and depression-like symptoms in the rodents that we're looking at, and we're looking at what are the mechanisms of that. We're uh, right now very focused on something that we call individual variation. So even when you take a group of rats and they're almost genetically identical and very similar, and you expose them to stress, some of them develop anxiety symptoms and some don't. And we're looking at what are the mechanisms of the brain that enable that. So in our case, we're looking at the plasticity that involves myelin, the ensheathing of the, of the neurons that look very different in ones that develop anxiety and ones that don't. So when you say that some stress can actually be good for our brains, what exactly does that mean inside the hippocampus? I mean, obviously the hippocampus is the area of the brain that's responsible for our memory. Um, and what does that mean that, um, does that mean that it, there's, there's an environment, a little bit of stress can actually make an environment where plaques, uh, it's more difficult for plaques to, to build up? Or what does it mean when you say some could actually be good for the brain? So we, we, I'll give you two examples, two mechanisms that we looked at. One of the things that's, that are very important for the proper function of the hippocampus in, in memory is the generation of new neurons, to adult neurogenesis. 
So you know that the, most of us grew up in a world where we were told that you're born with a set amount of neurons and that's what you're gonna have throughout your life. And then they, little by little they die. Um, and in aging, they die more. And if you have plaques, they might die more, but you never get new neurons. And then it turned out that that's not so true for a couple of areas. So in most of the brain, that's true. And then there are a couple of areas that that's not true. And you have generation of new neurons throughout life. You have a pool of stem cells that create new neurons. And they're very important for um, multiple things. They're very important for specific memories, for taxing memories, for the more complicated uh, learning types. And they're very important for your HPA axis, your stress axis. So they play a role both in regulating your stress and in regulating your memory. And if you look um, overall what happens to those neurons, then you have a lot, you generate a lot of those when you're young. And as you're go, growing older, you generate less and less. But throughout your life, until it was shown in people in their 80s and 90s, you still generate those new neurons. And stress, chronic stress, depresses that. So whenever you have chronic stress, we see a decrease in the generation of those new neurons. But it turns out that a moderate amount of stress, just the right amount of a little bit of stress, pushes it up and you generate more neurons. And those neurons are actually then integrated into the circuitry and activated in your fear learning in a way that buffers you from the next stressor that comes along. So, so that's one example. So meaning, um, like to put that into just layman's terms, it means like, so your preliminary findings indicate that a little bit of stress is actually good for us, but chronic stress can cause longer term damage? Yeah, yeah. So long chronic stress causes longer term damage, but not even that. You could even show in another study where we actually didn't look at the hippocampus, but we looked at uh, social uh, buffering or so social function. We saw, we gave exactly the same stressor paradigm in the same amount. Uh, with rats, they really don't like to be held in place. So that's annoying to them. So you, you hold them in place in a little bag and that's an acute stressor. And we paired that with a smell. And in one situation, we paired it with a mint smell, which is neutral to them. So now you're, handle, you're held in place and you're smelling a mint. That's a moderate stressor or you're held in place and we put fox urine. And so it's a predator. So it's a much more severe stressor. Physically, it's exactly the same thing. You're held in place for three hours, but in one case, you're held in place and you can't move. In one place, you're held in place and you're smelling a predator that you think is there out to eat you and you can't run away from it. So that becomes a severe stressor, sort of a trauma, but same amount of time. They're both acute stressors. And when you do that with the mint smell, what happens is the brain generates more of the hormone oxytocin and the receptor for oxytocin, and the animals become very pro-social. They start cuddling with each other. Uh, they, uh, for the next few weeks, actually, they, they would be very nicely playing with each other and sharing resources and so on and buffering the stress response. So you now don't have detrimental effects of the stress response. But when you do the severe stress or the trauma, just by changing what they smell, you all of a sudden have a decrease in oxytocin receptor and you have social withdrawal and they become much more aggressive and you exacerbate and you have a much bigger stress response and bigger effects on the brain. Would that be more classified as PTSD the, in that in mimicking that experiment when you have the predator around, is that more equivalent to um, yeah. post-traumatic stress? Yep. 
Yeah, absolutely. So this would be a mimic of a PTSD. And, and what we're finding is that you have mechanisms that push that. And then we're also looking at the population level, some rats, and we, we have some work in collaboration with UCSF researchers that shows also PTSD patients show similar changes in the brain as opposed to people who went through the trauma and didn't develop the PTSD. Why, why is the research focused around the hippocampus? So, for instance, the, um, the, the work that I described with the oxytocin, that's not in the hippocampus, that's in another part of the brain, that's the hypothalamus. But the hippocampus itself is sort of a hub for plasticity. It has mechanisms in it that you don't see in other places of the brain, where the hippocampus is very sensitive to what happens in the environment and changes very rapidly. And so if your question is about plasticity, it's very interesting to look at the hippocampus. That's an area that there's a lot of electrophysiological plasticity. There's a lot of um, this new, new adult neurogenesis that I described. And the hippocampus is also functionally super interesting. It responds to stress. It controls the stress response. The stress response is a, uh, it's a neuroendocrine uh, response that involves uh, the sequential secretion of different hormones that are then activated. And the hippocampus is sort of the top control on all of that. So, so the hippocampus itself responds to stress and controls the stress. And therefore, it's the area that makes sense to look at. Okay, and we have a question coming in from one of our viewers saying, how do you know what the right amount of stress to endure is, right? I mean, we don't really prescribe our own stress, but I mean, what what is the, um, in terms of your research, um, when is it too much versus just the right amount? Right, so that, that's a great question. And I get asked that a lot and it's, um, and the answer is you. Uh, nobody can tell you. I think you kind of know for yourself and it's going to be different for every person. Um, it's not going to be this. Even, as I said, in a genetically identical population of animals that grew in the same animal facility, everything is the same in their life, we find variability. The amount of, uh, this is an, another work that we have done, but also others that um, I can tell you about, as a, as a pup, as a rat pup when you're born, um, my dog is barking. The, <laughs> the amount of licking and grooming that you get from your mother varies. If we look at a population, I can draw a graph and they would have a different amount of licking and grooming. Some get a lot of licking and grooming from the mothers and some get very, very little. That changes your hippocampus in a way that makes you very differently susceptible to stress response throughout your life, for instance. So there's some developmental programming that happens in utero, there's some developmental programming that happens at birth and prenatally and perinatally around the time that you're born that then dictates how susceptible you are to stress throughout your life. And then that makes each one of us unique. And so something that's super stressful for one person could be not stressful for another person. But the really, um, and there isn't a way to measure that. People were trying to find biomarkers. Can we look at the amount of cortisol in your blood and say you're just at the right amount? You can't do that. Um, that that doesn't really work. There are markers. Um, I'm sure you guys are aware of the work by from UCSF um, by Elizabeth Blackburn that we're looking at the telomere. Do, do you guys know about that? No, so, tell us about that. So the, she was looking at, and, and the, the, the big... Uh, initial paper, the very interesting paper, was actually looking at a caregiver uh, group 
versus not and asking is there markers of stress in their blood and they looked at the ends of their chromosomes so our chromosomes which which are what how determines how you age right the telomeres right it determines how you age and so the shorter they are the more aged your cells are and it uh there was a beautiful correlation of uh, age with caregiving. The more you are, uh, the more you are a caregiver, the more your uh, telomeres were shorter. And um, and they came up with a number. They said 13 years. But what was really interesting about that is that then they continued the work and they tried to see what exactly would be the correlation. Is it the hormone level? Is it the length of time that you're a caregiver? What is the best correlation? And as biologists, we always try to find numbers. Can we quantify this exactly by numbers? And do you know what was actually the predictor? It was not the length of time. It was not the amount of stress hormone in your blood. It was your self-report of how stressed you are. So, so, so mind-blowing to all of us in the community is that something that we feel is sort of wishy-washy, how stressed do you feel you are? That is the predictor. Interesting. So it's very biological marker. Is there a correlation between how aware you are of your stress and how much damage it has to you? To you? <laughs> so there is uh, there's a wonderful TED talk that you guys should all see that's called Make Stress Your Friend by Kelly McGonigal from Stanford. And she's showing there a, a, um, a big epi epidemiological study in which they discovered that basically if you predict if you said that stress is something that is detrimental for your health, you're in the worst position. So it's not stress that makes you very sick. It's knowing that stress will make you very sick and having stress and being aware of it. But uh, which is a funny thing, but but at the end of the day, it's about appraisal and, and dealing with a situation. And I think if you feel very, very stressed, that's probably how your body reacts to it, but in a very physiological way. Right. And, so it's not to say that, you know, now to wake up any more, every morning and tell yourself, I'm not stressed, I'm not stressed, I'm not right? not going to work. But there are a lot of things that people have shown that can work. So physical exercise, uh, mindfulness, meditation, mindfulness, yeah. yoga, changing changing the, uh, the appraisal of a situation yeah. is going to be very helpful. Um, we have quite a few questions coming in. Um, one of them is, do you find that people are aware of how stressed they are? Well, that you just kind of answered that. But but more importantly, is there any non-medical test to measure stress? So um, there are questionnaires, and I think they are actually, the, the questionnaires probably work as as good as, if not better, than than the medical test. The medical tests are either looking at the amount of cortisol in your blood. And I think we, we've all been hung on that for many years and now don't believe in it anymore. This is just not a good predictor. Um, it's not a good predictor in a lot of different ways. It actually turns out that, um, so cortisol is the end point of that. I said there is a sequential secretion of a lot of hormones. Uh, CRH, ACTH, adrenaline, and then cortisol comes at the end of it. And we all thought about it as the biological measure of how stressed you are. I can take rats and I stress them and I would get a graph in which it goes up and it goes down. So it was always thought of that. But then it turns out that with chronic stress and with depression, you actually have less of that hormone in your brain, in, in your blood. Um, with PTSD, 
Actually, the worst PTSD patients are the ones that don't have this increase in cortisol with acute stress. So that is important to have. And overall, it's just um, hardly ever seen as a marker anymore. The other thing that people are using is to uh, test the galvanic skin responses to see how the conductance of the skin, but that's also a very um, not linear relationship with actually. So it turns out that those stress questionnaires are probably the best way to assess one's stress. So just really um, just a just a verbal or a reflection. Yeah. Um, Another viewer has just asked if, um, given what we know about stress, do you suggest that people should take medicine to control their stress levels? Um, So there isn't great success with medication on reducing a stress response. I don't think. I think that um, antidepressants are very helpful for depression, but not necessarily for the stress response. With post-traumatic stress disorder, which is the biggest um, biological outcome of an exposure to trauma, um, the medication approach just never worked very well. There is no pharmacology that works super well for that. Uh, Antidepressants actually don't work for that at all. Anti-anxiety medications don't seem to do anything good. So for PTSD today, the the leading uh, approaches for success are are not medications. So EMDR is one thing that is very successful and biologically we don't have a good explanation for that. So EMDR is the training of eye movement as the person recounts the trauma. That's very successful. Uh, Mindfulness-based stress reduction technique seems to be successful for that. Um, And virtual reality, reliving the trauma and changing the context. But there are not very good successes with pharmacology at all. Okay, and we have some, um, one viewer has said, those of us living with dementia have said for a long time that stress really impacts symptoms. Um, So does this mean that we somehow have to change how we think about it? Um, I guess, you know, a lot of the um, belief is is that stress will increase your risk of dementia, Alzheimer's. What, what's your feeling on that? What do we know scientifically, and why are we told so much that stress will impact um, the, the chance of us um, getting dementia or Alzheimer's? So one of the things um, that I think was the earlier beliefs that didn't come true is that stress increases the amount of cells that are dying in your brain. That with stress, you will get more cells dying, and specifically in the hippocampus, and then this should be the exact same population of cells that are um, that are vulnerable in, in neurodegenerative disorders, and therefore um, you're just killing more cells and you'll start with it. And that, that was not ever found to be true. That's, that was found to be not true. So stress itself does not kill brain cells. Um, you can take... I did actually take neurons in a dish and throw the stress hormone on them. And as much as you put it on, it's not going to kill them at all. But what happens is that those cells become more vulnerable to secondary hits. And so when something else happens, if it's a seizure, that's part of my lab is working on traumatic brain injury and and epilepsy, concussions, we talked about concussions before. When that comes along on a stress brain, then those cells are much more vulnerable and they would be more likely to die. When a toxic protein load or aggregates like uh, like you would see in a neurodegenerative disorder, when that comes on top of a stressed brain, the cells are more susceptible. 
So it's not that the stress itself kills it, but it can exacerbate damage that you get from the neurodegenerative disorder. So meaning, does it make us more susceptible to other conditions that could um, deteriorate our, our brain health? It makes us more susceptible to the damage from the other conditions. So it, it doesn't make you more likely to have uh, maybe Alzheimer's, but if you have Alzheimer's and the brain is very stressed, then those cells are more likely to die. They're just, they're weaker, if you will. So, um, Daniela, you, you've also done um, research on just normal aging and stress on the brain. Tell us a little bit about that and your findings there. Yeah, so, um, so as I said, my lab studies plasticity. So stress is one thing that we study, but we're looking at other conditions in which the brain changes. And one of them is, um, is with an injury or percussion, and another one is just during aging. So without... Um, you take out everything that's Alzheimer's disease and just look at a brain that's aging, there are changes in the brain and there's a cognitive decline in some. Again, there's individual variability that's very similar to the stress response that some individuals will show just um, their normal brain function throughout aging and some will not. And the same happens with rodents. When we look at rodents, some of them continue to do just the same in cognitive tests and some have. And so we were trying to find what would be one of the early uh, things that happen in the brain to explain that cognitive decline. And we found that it has to do with vascular function. So there are brain vessels in the brain, the brain, uh, the vasculature. There's a very big demand of, uh, of blood glucose and oxygen supply in the brain. And so the vasculature is very, very rich. And it looks a little bit different than anywhere else in your body because it has something around it that's called the blood-brain barrier. So every vessel in your brain is, is, has a layer of cells around it that keeps it isolated so that things from the blood can't just spill into the brain. So the brain is protected this way. For instance, the, our immune cells can't get into the brain and just different proteins and so on can't just get into the brain because of this blood-brain barrier. Now, in aging, we found that pretty early in aging, sometimes during uh, um, middle age and, and as a very early event, we see a decrease in, this, in the function of the blood-brain barrier. It starts to deteriorate, and it so happens that it starts to deteriorate in the hippocampus as a first place. And you can see that we, we've shown that in human patients, and we've shown that in rodents, in mice and in rats. Um, and we followed what happens when some of the blood proteins get into the brain. And they activate a signaling cascade in cells that are not the neurons, but other cells called astrocytes. And it activates an inflammatory response. So this is a, an appropriate response if there was a pathogen in the brain. But in this case, the brain is completely sterile. There is no pathogen. And the brain is reacting with a big inflammatory response that changes neurons around it in a way that causes cognitive decline neural dysfunction and cognitive de decline, and also cell death that is very similar to neurodegeneration. So it's interesting as you describe this, um, we've always thought of um, brain disease as the death of neurons of, you know, in our, the cells in our brain. Um, but what you're saying is actually um, the blood brain barrier, um, which a lot of things like fuel glucose has to cross the blood brain barrier to fuel our brains um, may play a, a more significant role um, if, if the obviously the blood brain barrier is compromised. Yeah, absolutely. 
So, um, so th this was a big shift in the way that we think about it and the other things about it. And uh, we had to do a lot of things to convince ourselves that it's true. So one of the things that we did is we did something that we call gain of function and loss of function. We took a young mouse and we said, nothing else is, everything is exactly the same. We're just going to open the blood-brain barrier. Or even more than that, we're going to take the one protein from the blood and infuse it into the brain when the blood-brain barrier is intact. And that was enough to recapitulate uh, an aged brain. We took four phenotypes of an aged brain, and you get all four of them in a young mouse that got this blood protein into their brain. And then we said, okay, so we can gain the function with this one protein. Can we lose the function? And so there is a receptor that gets specifically activated by this blood protein, and we eliminated it genetically only from those cells, the astrocytes. So the neurons are exactly the same. We're taking now an aged brain and we're eliminating that receptor. It can't get activated. And you rescue the aging phenotype. And what was really interesting is that we started by doing this in middle age and showing that they don't age as you would think with those four phenotypes. But then we got very excited and we said, can we actually reverse aging? Can you take a brain that's already aged? And if it is cell death, then there's not much that you're gonna be able to recover. But if the plastic ability is still there and it's masked by this inflammatory response, then you could think that you would reverse this. And we were able to reverse this. So you can take an aged brain, eliminate this receptor, and it reversed to a phenotype of a young brain. And then we so developed a drug. That, that's in rats. Is that in mice or rats? Mice, that was in mice. So, okay, so so just put a little bit of context into this because I, I, I find what you're saying incredibly exciting and to th think that we could reverse my aging brain and make it into a, a, a really young uh, brain where the, the brain cells aren't dying off. Um, but how how far away because what 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 your research is suggesting is actually not only um the reasons why our brains age but um there is this possibility of actually reversing that aging process um and isolating um you know what makes us age and changing that how far away are we with research to really understand? I mean, th this is still in mice. And as we all know, a lot of um, mice experiments, the majority of them do not apply to humans. They're too different from us. Um, so what is your assessment on um, the potential of these findings? Um, and when can we relate them to humans? Yeah. So we've done some of the work to relate them to humans in 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 ways that are easy to do at this early stage. So for instance, um, we, did, uh, we did studies with MRI looking at the brains of aging population and saying, can we actually correlate the cognitive abilities with the status of the blood-brain barrier in the hippocampus? And we could do that. We know that that happens. And then the next stage that we did is we said, okay, can we get post-mortem brains and stain them and see if there's the actual activation that we think it is? And so we got post-mortem brains of people in different ages uh, that were neurologically intact, but just during the, so they did not have a neurodegenerative disorder, but just normal aging from 20 to 80. And when we look at that, we do see an increase with age in this blood protein co-localizes in those astrocytes with the activity of this uh, receptor, TG beta receptor. So we know that that happened. So then we went to brains that were donated by Alzheimer's patient. And we looked at that and you definitely see a very big increase in those three markers that are co-localized in the brains of Alzheimer's patients. 
Uh, so there's a lot of reasons to think that it's very relevant to humans, but now the jump from the clinical trial in mice worked really well. Can we move to clinical trials in, in humans? Um, that, that's exactly what we're, where we're at now. We're raising, we're at the point that we're trying to fundraise for that company that will develop this drug. But that, okay. that, as we know, that takes a long time. Yeah. Um, so uh, another viewer has just written in asking if there's a nutritional component to all of this. So um, I think what that person means is, you know, can can how much can we control um, any of this through nutrition? So this is something that I don't know enough about um, in in my scientific world. And I think it's starting and it's very interesting. And we just discussed before this started that personally, I'm, I'm a huge believer in the energetics and the energetics of the cells in the brain are super important. And that's definitely something that's dictated by what we eat. And so um, I got fascinated with the keto story, the keto diet and, and brains being on, on ketones are very well known in my other half of life in the epilepsy research. So the keto diet has been fantastically successful for, it started with kids with epilepsy and you can control seizures completely. Now what we're seeing, those changes in the neurons that we're seeing are a reprogramming of the system towards excitation. We call it excitation to inhibition imbalance. So there's more excitation and we're getting in those um, animals Seizure-like events that we don't call seizures, but they've also been shown to, I don't know if you guys have looked into it, but th there's a whole uh, part of the world that looks at Alzheimer as sort of very silent seizures that those patients are having. So there's a slow wave events that occur uh, periodically and they're not exactly seizures, but they're very similar to a type of seizure. And this has been very well controlled with keto diet. And I, there's no reason to believe that it wouldn't be the same here. So I'm, I'm fascinated by it and really want to get into it. Uh, there's very little research so far that's, that's done on it. You know, as we do more of these brain talks, it's really interesting to note how um, science is really looking into different things. And in, in a way, I think, um, you know, we had a great talk with um, a nutritional scientist um, by the name of Ed Blondes, who uh, is studying the role of ketones um, crossing as an alternative source of fuel for your um, brain. Uh, ketones, of course, being an energy source uh, of fuel for your brains that cross uh, the blood-brain barrier. Um, so, I mean, I, I think there's a lot more research that has to happen. Um, and, you know, um, and hopefully by getting people like yourself and, and, and other areas of science to connect, um, we can actually really, I mean, for me, I think there's a lot of research um, and there's, there's a lot of evidence being um, collected around how nutrition relates to our health and the health of our brains in particular. Um, it would be nice to put all of this information together and, and truly test it in a very scientific way so that we have evidence because um, nutrition is something we do have control over for ourselves. Right. And, and it's kind of funny that when, when you start to look at it, I mean, the, there are, I think, so many other solutions that are not drugs, but they don't get as much um, funding. And there isn't a big push for that because it's, um, in a way, it, it's a cheap option. And so there isn't anybody that's really interested in that. Who's going to make money off of it? And somehow the research funding is driven by 
somebody needs to get money out of it at the end. So it's it's very, I had a very eye-opening experience in the last year when we started looking into all of this, how much of it is driven not exactly by the science, but by funding questions. Um, and, and specifically with ketogenesis, I mean, with, with the ketone bodies and the keto diet, there is so much success with the epilepsy world that we know that it affects the brain in ways that would be beneficial. Yeah, so you're starting with the leg up. Yeah, absolutely. And we, we've just had someone write in saying, thank you. There's a whole group of us doing a keto based protocol to help keep us living well with dementia. We'd love to con uh, connect with you on how it's helping us. So, you know, maybe I would love to hear about that. Yeah, it, 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 it seems like so I, I will. I will. Con we will connect you after this talk. But it does seem like there is synergy there. Uh, people are already taking this on themselves. You know, nutrition, as I said yeah. before, uh, people and individuals have control over. And so, um, you know, perhaps a lot of this research is already being done um, by groups of people who are uh, being proactive on their own health. So how wonderful uh, to connect yeah. those people uh, with, with the science. Right. But, but I think the, the, the medical establishment is a little bit behind on that. If you talk to most doctors, they're not pro that. You will still hear a lot of resistance. Yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. For a lot of reasons that you, you may have described to, you know, the money, the, the money is not necessarily there. So, Daniela, we thank you so much um, for joining us. I, I found this talk incredibly interesting. Um, we will um, actively, uh, you know, put you in touch with the group that is already uh um, doing um, a keto diet, and um, hopefully there will be some um, uh, something that you can, um, you know, uh, learn from that. Um, but in the meantime, um, you know, we really appreciate your time. Um, I'm sure as um, we put these talks out, people come up with uh, more questions. Um, if that's the case, please do post it in the Facebook group, and we will be sure uh, that Daniela gets your questions. But thank you so much for taking the time. Um, I think it's really important con to connect science with the community. Um, and your, your talk today was evidence of that. So thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. And thank you for doing this such an important work. I think, you know, social support and the, the access to information is the most important thing that anybody could do. And so you guys are, are do just doing it. You're doing exactly it. Great. Thanks so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank